audio jungle. Audio jungle. Emily Chang and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Musk walks and Twitter it tanks. We'll bring you the latest on the legal battle ahead. What the future of the $44 billion Twitter deal actually looks like. Plus a slash in valuation for one of Europe's most high profile startups, Klarna, being valued now at just $6.7 billion, down from $45.6 billion just one year ago. We talked to an investor in the company. And a primetime shopping event. Amazon kicking off its two-day shopping extravaganza on Tuesday. How Prime Day could help Amazon's third quarter online sales gain. We're going to be getting to all of that in but a moment. But first, let's get a look in on those markets and mega cap tech. Well, they were down on this Monday, snapping a hot streak for the sector in the last week. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow, well, you've got to be pushing us ahead to all important earnings, but some risk right. aversion today. Yeah, I would say risk off is the, is the buzz phrase of Monday's session. Look at the Nasdaq 100, biggest drop in around two weeks. We're, we're off the back of five straight days of gains for the Nasdaq 100, which was its best winning streak since November. You look at some of the areas of pain, semiconductors, the SOX down 2.5%, one of the underperformers at a time where yields are pulling back again below 3%. Bitcoin kind of caught up in this risk off sentiment. But there is a bit of a pattern emerging, I suppose. You come with me into my Bloomberg terminal and look at this chart. We've seen in recent weeks the Nasdaq 100 make a weekly gain and then pull back, the rally kind of losing momentum. Then we have a few down weeks, then we have an up week. There's no real staying power. And I think you're right, Caroline, that what I'm hearing in the market this Monday is we're waiting for earnings season to get a real lens into the world. How worried are we about inflation and recession fears, let alone the impact of Fed and the rates? And as always, really big corporate stories pushing the agenda. If you come with me back to the studio and look at kind of the stocks on the move, it was the mega caps like your apples pulling down the index from a points mover perspective, but Rivian down 6.5%. Bloomberg scoop that the company plans to cut 5% of its workforce. You and I are going to talk about that later in the show. The big story, I'm going to have my go at it. Twitter down 11% after Musk filed to walk away from that merger agreement. The breaking news after market close is that the law firm representing Twitter says that the company has done nothing wrong. I know you're about to get into that, but also interesting to look at Tesla. The first higher early in Monday session, then down 6.5% of the close. The investors looking at what this all means in the bigger scheme of things. What is Elon Musk going to do? Is he going to carry on? What does it mean for his Tesla stake? Will he have to sell it down still? More questions than answers, which often, in my experience, Caroline, is the way when you're talking about Elon Musk. And I'm pleased to say that we've got more answers coming from you on our questions about your scoop, Ed Ludlow, on the Riven News. Meanwhile, 
Let's get back to the scene being set for a disruptive legal battle over the future of Twitter. Shares of the social media platform falling after Elon Musk walked away from his $44 billion deal to buy the company. Musk alleges, look, that Twitter misrepresented user data. Twitter plans to sue Musk to close the transaction. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner joins us. And just ahead of our conversation, Kurt, of course, we understand from a lawyer for Twitter, and it is always the lawyers that win in this, it would be said. Twitter's lawyer is saying that Musk's termination is invalid and wrongful, and he says that Twitter has breached no obligations. Where are you at with this? Yeah, we're, we're getting to the fun part of the, uh, uh, you know, deal where all the lawyers are just going to start sending each other letters back and <laughs> forth and we're going to have to parse through all this legalese. But you're right. Now it's Twitter's turn, right? On Friday, we were talking, Caroline, you and I were, were live on air when we were reading, uh, you know, this letter from Elon Musk's lawyers basically saying, hey, Twitter, you violated this agreement now. Twitter has filed its response and, and is basically saying the opposite. You know, we have upheld our uh, version of the agreement or our part of the agreement, and it's you who has been misleading or who has, uh, you know, violated, right? And so we're clearly headed to a court here, and both sides are going to get to uh, argue their case. But at least for right now, the lawyers are starting to you know, put their, their respective arguments out into uh, the universe. And what is some of the theories being held here as to how could how it could turn out who could win out it's not just going to be a one billion dollar termination feel fee it feels no I, I i would be shocked if that's the ultimate result i would imagine that we're going to end up somewhere in the middle right i think there's two kind of dramatic outcomes that could come from this legal battle the one is actually what you just said that you know, a court uh, uh, rules in favor of Elon Musk and that he pays termination fee and walks away. The other is that they rule in favor of Twitter and they force Elon Musk to spend $44 billion to buy a company he doesn't want to buy. Now, alternatively, I think these two sides could settle somewhere in the middle. That, to me, seems like the most likely scenario, right? But in that, in that case, there's infinite number of outcomes here, so we don't uh, know exactly where they're going to uh, end up. Nothing like infinite amount of outcomes <laughs> to pass. Kurt Wagner, again, thank you so much for all your expertise on that Friday and for expertise again today as we continue to follow this pretty torrid story. Let's get more analysis for you. Let's bring in Mark Mahaney of Evercore, who covers the company. And, well, as we're saying, an infinite amount of outcomes here, Mark, but from a fundamental basis, without the $44 billion offer, what is Twitter worth? It's probably not too far off from where it would trade if the deal was decided tomorrow it was off, probably come off a couple of percent. But there's some markers in the market. You can look at the multiples that Pinterest uh, and Snapchat trade at. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a little bit of downside to that kind of high 20s, $30 range, something like that. But it's not it's not much more dramatic uh, than that. And the difference here is, by the way, you know, we kind of forgotten this and all this, the noise is that Twitter's a good asset. Uh, it generated $5 billion in advertising dollars last year. Advertisers were obviously cognizant of and willing to tolerate the bot issue. Uh, and uh, the company generated positive free cash flow margins for several years, you know, prior to the COVID crisis. So it's a business that's at, you know, reasonable scale, decent growth, 
Um, it's underperformed major peers like Google and, uh, and Facebook, but those were always unfair comparisons. It's a decent asset. Uh, near, uh, re uh, recently, it's probably been somewhat impaired by all the uncertainty over mm -hmm. this deal. And then going forwards, it's probably somewhat impaired by the recession that's taking out uh, growth from almost all Internet ad assets. Does it become impaired by advertisers walking away because of bots, as it seems that um, currently Elon Musk is trying to argue? I don't know. It, Caroline, it's possible. I've run surveys on Twitter for 10 years, advertiser surveys on Twitter for almost 10 years. It's never come up as an issue. I've never actually had a channel check or a discussion with an advertiser that said, I can buy ads on Facebook, but I can't do it on Twitter because of the bots issue. I've never heard that. Uh, that there are bots, that there are uh, click farms in social media. I think that's well understood. It's part of the, the, the you know, it's part of the peril of these uh, these industries and uh, these companies and Twitter and Pinterest and and Google and Facebook have always had to fight back against these uh, bot farms. It, it's just part of the uh, part of doing business. People run bots for political reasons. They run them for commercial reasons. But it's always been a factor. I don't think it's been an issue for advertisers uh, over the last couple of years. I think that five billion in ad revenue that Twitter got last year, they got the they, they earned it. And I think uh, and ad advertisers weren't put off by the fact that mm. there were bots on the platform. Has there been any upside to this whole fiasco for Twitter? I'm struggling, Caroline. I think there's been no upside. Mm. So all you've done is um, created a lot of dysfunction within the company. They've lost some of their top employees. Uh, there's probably been some demoralization of employees because, uh, you know, Musk has come out and said that there were too many people working there. How would you feel if somebody was going to buy your uh, uh, company started off by saying there are too many employees at the company? So I just think that's what's happened is very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought um, Musk had a lot of interesting ideas of ways to improve mm -hmm. Twitter. And maybe this will all come out and maybe maybe we will get a, some sort of resolution at a reduced deal size. But I, I, my guess is that the worst case scenario is going to come through, which is that this is going to go through the courts for some time. There'll be some sort of breakup fee, and then Twitter's going to have to rebuild a little bit. And uh, that's probably going to be a year from now. Uh, and it's uh, very unfortunate, I think, what's transpired here over the last couple of months for and investors as a whole. And just put the sort of, well, mind math for us out there. If, if indeed Elon Musk is forced to buy it, how damaging is that? <laughs> Caroline, these are these are just really hard questions yeah. to answer. They're uncharted waters. I can't imagine it'd be good for Twitter to be owned by somebody who has no interest in owning yeah. the asset. Although I'm sure that's happened in media landscape. So um, uh, you know, it gets. I mean, he, what he wants to do is take it private. So and, and and he was very clear from the beginning. His intentions were not commercial. He had idealistic, if you will, or or uh, ideological is the wrong word, but uh, you know he had vision reasons for buying the company. This was about vision. 
about an asset that he was he really cared deeply and passionately about and he wanted to see it improved ways that he thought he could Im improve the asset and i thought he had some interesting ideas i thought he was going to get into them this morass it's very difficult these issues about what should be moderated and what shouldn't and whether anything should be moderated and it really requires a lot of adults in a room i think to solve those kind of problems and I think Twitter had some of those people, by the way, in the past. But anyway, I, I, I thought Musk was going to bring a fresh perspective to the company that may have actually helped the asset, something that's well known and used by so many people around the world. It's just unfortunate how this is all uh, wound up where it is uh, today. I don't think anybody looks good coming out of this. Well said. And indeed. We think you come out looking good to give us your expertise over there at Evercore. We thank you, Mark Mahaney, really thank trying you, to find the fundamentals in what is, in general, a non-fundamental story at the moment. Meanwhile, coming up, buy now, pay later, darling Klarna. Caesar's valuation absolutely slashed in the latest funding round. We'll discuss the dramatic reversal with Andrea Walney of Manhattan Ventures Partners. This is Bloomberg. of a dramatic reversal for one of Europe's most high-profile startups, Klarna Bank. Valuation being slashed to just $6.7 billion in its latest funding round, we understand. That's down from, at one point, more than $45 billion in June 2021. The Swedish buy-now-pay-later giant has been burning through hundreds of millions of dollars, of course, as a startup. And joining us to discuss where next and how we continue to see talent sort of recompense in this market. Andrea Wong of Manhattan Venture Partners. Andrea, it's really great to have you on. And of course, Klarna, one of your uh, numerous members of your portfolio. And I'm interested as to what happens in these environments, how, how painful it is for the executives leading the business and the people who've invested. Yeah, so thanks so much for having me, Caroline. So I will say that at Manhattan Business Partners, where we invest in growth and late stage companies, much like Klarna, while they're really hitting the peak trajectory of their business, is that we still believe that extraordinary companies backed by the, invest the best investors will deliver these types of outsized returns. And so even though Klarna has seen their valuation compressed, we believe in their long-term prospects very much so. And I think that they're deploying a number of strategies to keep the existing employee base and executive base retained. Yeah, because talk to us. I mean, you're, you're someone who thinks a lot about well, liquidity in the secondary market. And a lot of that, often these big valuations and moments of exit, which have currently the doors have shut to a certain extent, are because it's about talent management. It's about ensuring that they're able to take some money out, have a liquidity event. How hard has that become at the moment? Well, for the best companies in this world, there's always going to be demand, right? So I think that that's something that we always measure when we evaluate companies, whether it's on a primary basis or on a secondary basis. And when it comes to Klarna, there's always been a really healthy volume of activity in the business. And investors are really excited about the prospects of where they're growing, because as of right now, they are the market leader across all geographies in the buy now, pay later space and growing much further 
than just that nature of its business. And so I would say the prospects of the secondary market continue to get rather exciting and have created some really unique opportunities to buy into the business or dollar cost average across both businesses like Klarna and others. What are you wanting to see from the leadership at Klarna, but the leadership of all your companies that you've currently been backing and some that, of course, have seen exits themselves, but some that continue to grow in this environment. How Do you want them to be focused more in on profit in this environment? Absolutely. So I do say across the board that we're really focusing on seeing our companies invest in that profitability and increase their margins so that they can get above the line, right? And at least be in the single digit profitability margins where Klarna has sit for the last 14 years of its business, if not longer, right? So Klarna is an exceptional example of a company who knows how to increase its profitability and control it. Overall though, for other businesses across our portfolio and others in the venture landscape, it's that we might wanna turn down the, the dial a bit on sales and marketing spend and really increase that profit margin, which is really a level of just baking in those levers, right? Saying, hey, maybe we don't need to spend so much on Facebook ads or LinkedIn ads this quarter, or maybe, hey, we don't need to put as much money into creating a new layer of product roadmap and instead just focus on the products that deliver, right? Mm. And focus on the customers who are there versus creating new innovative products just as a way to be uh, unique in their product market fit direction. How about products that had seemed a real winner in terms of well, acquisition of new customers? Certainly, I think of Revolut, another European pinup in terms of well, success story in the fintech world. And they really had doubled down on offering crypto, for example, to bring in new users. But with the fallout and valuation there as well, are you likely to see products moved away from or do you think they'll remain committed to them? I think that what they'll stop doing is just de delivering on new products, right? Mm -hmm. I think as we look at companies like Klarna and like Revolut is that they want to shift away from the core focus that they've been you know, honed in on for Klarna, it's buy now, pay later, for example, and instead focus on creating volume from their existing user base, which is something we are really excited about, right? I think generally companies like Klarna realize where their public comps sit and they want to ensure that they're creating their own market position away from those public comps and seeing that their growth can continue while just honing in on the products that have always been proven to be successful for these companies, right? And so I really love how Sebastian, uh, the CEO of Parna today said on Twitter that what doesn't kill you make you stronger because it's a, it's a business that I think generally understands exactly where their mindset could be to keep honing in on the products that win. And with this new capital infusion for Klarna, it's really going to allow them to keep that expansion growing across the United States, which is something where their public comp firm has predominantly had a dominant force, but Klarna, uh, as we know, is just growing so much more faster at a 300% you know, annual growth rate relative to them as a comp. So we have a lot of uh, hope there. Well, from your perspective, how long does this sort of 
quietening down in the private markets and valuations last fall. And I'm not saying every business is affected by it. I think you're in Flexport, of course, which is a company that's, well, really ramping up because there's a supply chain disaster out there and they're a company that can help. But there are areas like Instacart, which this is an inflationary environment. How long does that persist, do you think, Andrea? Yeah, so I would say right now we really need to see what the results of the first half of the year look like across all businesses, right? I think we're just closing the books on Q2 um, and going into Q3. And generally, where the reflection of the market is going to sit is what companies will be ready to go out, go mm -hmm. public, going into Q3 and ideally the months of September, October, and anything before the Thanksgiving holiday for the U.S. companies, that's where I would see there might be a shift in sentiment. But what's mm. happening is companies like Instacart, uh, for example, are filing their registration statement. Yeah. They're using really broad-based language to, de to describe what kind of statement um, and company they're going to be as a public company and determine whether that's right to go out. So these companies are choosing when to go out based on yeah. where the market will be, but at least they're ready to do so if it opens up. Andrea Wong, thank you so much for your time. Manhattan Ventures partners, stay well over there in Nashville. Meanwhile, coming up, an exclusive interview with the US Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo. Stay for it. This is Bloomberg. U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo, believes legislation that would appropriate $52 billion for domestic semiconductor manufacturing will pass Congress. She spoke exclusively on Bloomberg. Take a listen. Yes, it will happen. It's taking much too long. And uh, what's at stake is our national security, even beyond the economy. You know, every piece of military equipment requires chips. If you talk to the heads of national defense contractors, as, as I have done, uh, or senior ranking officials in the Department of Defense, they're all uh, very worried about the delay. Uh, but yes, it will get done. This is, at this point in the negotiation, unfortunately, uh, politicians look for leverage. And uh, while it isn't right to play politics with national security, that's what I think is happening. In the past two weeks, we, we made huge progress. Uh, we were closing out issues, finding compromise. So I think everyone just needs to come back today, uh, get back to work, and commit themselves to getting it done in the next few weeks. Let me ask you what difference it makes whether it gets done today or six months from today. What decisions are being made, perhaps by companies, such as, for example, the groundbreaking out in Columbus, what decisions are being made that may not be reversible down the road? Well, what you say is exactly right. Uh, chip companies are making decisions now, literally right now, because they need to meet demand of their biggest customers in 2025, 2026, which means they have to start getting cement in the ground on new facilities this summer and this fall. You know, earlier today, you saw global foundries has made a choice to expand in France, not the United States. You know, that's a loss. Uh, you just mentioned Intel, who is saying perhaps they'll slow down their Ohio expansion in favor of Germany. 
And the reason is because these big companies are hearing from their customers that they need confidence that the, you know, the companies will be able to hit the demand, you know, supply to them. 2025, 2026, 2027, chip demand is projected to be through the roof. And so these suppliers, whether it's Intel, Micron, Texas Instruments, they need to fulfill for their customers. They want to be in the US, but if the choices are not, you know, not fulfilling their customer demand or doing this in France, Germany, Singapore, Japan, who are already providing subsidies today, they're gonna to leave America and do that. And so that is the risk. And that's why today, members of Congress, get back into DC, get back, do your job, don't let America lose out. Should we be expecting an announcement from the president before he departs for the Middle East this week on tariffs, on easing the tariffs that are currently applied to a number of Chinese goods? Because that, ahead of the CPI number Wednesday, will be something I think a lot of people would look for. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know, Guy, the precise timing. I can tell you that we, his team, are in active you know, discussions with him, uh, something we're talking about every day. And he is, do, you know, he's doing his job, which is to say, looking at all the different factors. You will see a decision, I think, very soon, whether it's, whether it's before he takes off this week, I'm not sure. Uh, just to pursue the China issue for a moment, Madam Secretary, the tariffs are one thing. That's one part of a much more complex mosaic here. We talk about tariffs in terms of inflation. You've already said that's not going to have that big an effect on that. But what about the larger-term relationship with China? And let me be specific about this. In terms of specific tariffs being taken off or not, is it possible it could be bilateral? Is it possible China could actually give something to the United States to try to reformulate our trade relations? Uh, certainly that is possible, and you raise an excellent point, which is, you know, part of the discussion that the, one of the things the president is thinking about, which is to say, if we're going to do this, you know, what can they do on their side of the equation? So while I can't say for sure, uh, certainly that is possible. And by the way, if it doesn't happen immediately, it's something that we will continue to pursue just in the interest of you know, as you say, fairness. If we're lifting tariffs, what are they going to do? U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo there with our own David Weston and Guy Johnson. Coming up, cuts. They are coming for the EV maker that's grown perhaps a bit too big, too quickly. We have more on the Bloomberg scoop on Rivian next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in for Emily Chang. Let's get to a Bloomberg scoop. EV maker Rivian was cutting its workforce by 5% after a hot growth streak, according to sources. Now, Rivian shares, they closed down 6.5% on Monday. And that, of course, was following the report from our one Ed Ludlow. You helped break the story. Tell us a bit about where the job cuts are going to be coming from, Ed. 
Yeah, so it's important to note that sources say these are non-manufacturing roles, right? These are not the men and women on the assembly lines actually building the EVs. They're kind of back office roles, supportive roles. And Rivian's one of these startups that raised a lot of money before going public, raised a lot of money when it went public, and they were just able to grow so quickly. They've kind of doubled headcount to 14,000 employees in the last year alone. And in some of those areas, kind of support ancillary areas, they just grew too fast to, to too big a size. They have duplicates in a lot of roles. So with the macro picture such as it is, they're kind of trimming the fat and bracing for a sort of less solid global economy. Overall, do you think that this is a case of having overhired? Is this a case of just reorientation? Is this a case of just trying to meet the economy yeah. where it is? Rivian's interesting because it's supply constrained. In mm. other words, the demand for their EVs is so great that they can't possibly keep up with it. They can't build the EVs fast enough. They do have a lot of cash, $17 billion on the balance sheet, but I get the sense from insiders, also investors, that that $17 billion, a lot of it's already accounted for, right? They're going to build this second factory in Georgia to the tune of $5 billion. There's also all the R&D costs for the next generation of cars. And even though the CFO, Claire McDonough, is really inexperienced, she's a former Wall Street banker, she's very disciplined. And I get the sense that they're looking to preserve cash as best they can and kind of make it go a long way. So it's kind of all of the aforementioned things that you put. Very briefly, of course, you were looking just last week at how Rivian was, well, getting snapped up at some valley, at least in the photos. Yeah. Yeah, so RJ Scarrange, the CEO, was kind of the hot ticket. Every, everywhere I looked, RJ Scarrange was there and somebody wanted to talk to him. They brought some EVs with them, an R1S SUV and an R1T pickup to Sun Valley. And you had all these attendees kind of crowding around the car. Look at it. But I'm told that on the Thursday night, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, actually borrowed one of the pickup trucks with uh, a gang of people and went into town for dinner, which is interesting because as we've reported at Bloomberg, Apple's looking at its own EV potentially. And, you know, in the world of tech, it's interesting to see who's looking at who and who's spending time with who. Indeed. What a small world it is over there yeah. at Ludlow, looking at everyone and what they're up to. We thank you so much, our EV expert there. And meanwhile, well, let's get back to it. The key story of the day is Twitter and shares tumbled Monday after Elon Musk walked away, of course, on Friday from his $44 billion deal to buy the company, setting the scene for what is going to be a pretty disruptive legal battle. Our next guest says, well, Twitter is well positioned legally. Believes perhaps Musk is looking for any excuse to get out of this deal. Joining us is Anne Lipton, Tulane University Associate Professor in Business Law and Associate Dean for Faculty Research. Wonderful and to have you with us and your expertise. And do, are there many legal grounds for Elon Musk to stand on here? Um, it doesn't appear like it. I mean, obviously, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what facts he might develop um, as court proceedings continue. But at least based on what's been stated publicly, he's offered a number of grounds to argue that Twitter has breached its obligations and therefore he's entitled to walk away. And so far, they really just don't seem that substantial. So he claims that Twitter misled him about the spam on the platform. That's what's getting all the headlines. But he's not offered much evidence that it did mislead him. And even if it did, even if 
the spam counts were wrong, that's actually not a basis for walking away from a merger. You would have to show not only that they were wrong, but that they were dramatically wrong and were having some kind of long-term effect on Twitter's finances. And that kind of showing just, it hasn't been made. There's no evidence that that's the case. Um, yeah, so each one of his grounds, yeah. just they don't see that substantial. Talk to us about the legal precedent here, because if they rule in Twitter's favor, what happens? I mean, do, can they really force someone to buy a company? And, and then what occurs? Well, that's exactly the issue. I mean, I think that most people, at least watching from the outside, think that uh, Twitter is a very strong case. The question is, what happens after Twitter is found correct? Then, then what? What do we do? Well, they've signed a contract, and the contract basically says that there are two possibilities. One possibility is specific performance, meaning Musk is ordered by the court to follow through with his obligations and actually acquire Twitter. And the other is that Musk pay a breakup fee of a billion dollars. Obviously, Twitter would much rather he buy the company because <laughs> he's promised to pay $44 billion, and that's bigger than $1 billion. So the question is whether a court can and will really order Musk to go through and buy the company. And Delaware has done that. There have been several occasions in the past where buyers got cold feet and they wanted to walk away, and a court said nope, and ordered that they actually go through and buy. But this case is much bigger. It's a much bigger dollar figure on the deal. And it's a company that has this huge social footprint. And there's a real question as to whether a court will think it's appropriate to force an unwilling buyer to buy a company that's so um, important socially uh, over his own objections. But then the alternative, at least contractually, is just a billion dollars, which doesn't seem right either. Yeah, and, and to that end, how much do the judges, the lawyers involved have to paint a picture of what has been lost for Twitter, financially as well? Because fundamentally, obviously, the picture has changed since he first made the offer, and we all understand that, and some would hypothesize that this is all just a way in which to renegotiate the terms of the deal rather than walk away entirely. But this is also, you know, they've lost key talent. How can you assign monetary value to that? Well, that's exactly why uh, uh, parties contract to say there should be specific performance, meaning that must have, Musk has to go through with it. it, because you can't put a dollar figure very easily on mm. it. So that's why Twitter and Musk agreed ori originally that the proper remedy would be to order him to close, because there's no way exactly to put a dollar figure on it. And even if Twitter were to try, it would run into the fact that they've already agreed that if it has to be a dollar figure, a billion is the most they can get. So it's really kind of complicated whether the court is willing to order specific performance. If it's not, is it going to be stuck with the billion dollar cap or will it actually try to assess the amount of damage to Twitter, which could be much higher? And of course, I feel like this is going to go down in the history books, but also the legal uh, the legal education books of what we've now learned. We all knew this was, an, from day one, an extraordinary offer, an extraordinary deal, and, uh, and a very extraordinary person at the top sort of leading and driving this. From your perspective, does anything change? Do you think this makes companies act in a different way when they have become a target? Well, I mean, it, I, Elon Musk is so uh, singular. I mean, nothing about this deal unfolded the way deals normally do. Um, this sort of 
overnight purchase where he was pressuring the company on Twitter and it was signed almost immediately. I mean, if there's any lesson here, it's that if you have sort of an erratic buyer to be a little bit more careful, at least in the drafting of, of the merger agreement, which is otherwise very tightly drafted, but I mean, the billion dollar damages cap, maybe they shouldn't have included that part. Um, but I'm not sure how many lessons there are for the future because I'm not sure how many impulsive buys of a 44 for 44 billion dollars of a public company you ordinarily see. I mean, it's the the oddity of the purchase and the and the impression that Musk gave that he was buying it not for financial reasons but simply because he wanted it personally that make this so extraordinary and so hard to figure out what the next steps are. And of course, everyone quips. Oh, the only winners are the lawyers, are they? <laughs> um, well, they'll certainly do pretty well. Um, if, I, I think Musk will pretty much win if he gets to walk away from this for a billion dollars and nothing more. I mean, because, you know, he signed an agreement and, and, and created this chaos for this company. And if the only thing he has to pay, I mean, for me, a billion dollars would be quite a bit, but for Elon Musk, it's, you know, what's under his couch cushion. So, um, so for he, I think, would make out pretty well if that's all that he had to pay. Um, otherwise, he, he ends up with a company. Anne Lipton, extraordinary times. You put it all so eloquently for us. We thank you. Chilean University Associate Professor in Business Law and Associate Dean for Faculty Research. We thank her for joining. Coming up. Crypto, well, it could be facing another tumble, but does this actually mean that the regulation for digital assets is more important than ever? Kristen Smith, Blockchain Association with us. This is Bloomberg. about today's crypto report. Wall Street, some of them, are expecting the crypto crash to get a whole lot worse. Now, Bitcoin is likely to drop to $10,000. That's according to about 60% of a mixture of Wall Street and retail investors who responded to the latest Bloomberg MLive Pulse survey. Joining us now to debate and also where next for policymaking is Kristen Smith, Executive Director of Blockchain Association. I'm pleased to say, as always, it's Shanani Basak as well from Bloomberg. And Kristen, I want to get your take first and foremost. When we can take what we want with a pinch of salt to a certain degree of where next for prices. But as we see this unarguable crypto winter upon us, is it now the time to be doubling down on policy making, ensuring that perhaps the protections there as and when maybe we get a more intense bout of interest in the space again? No, I think you're absolutely right. I, there's a big focus right now in Washington on trying to figure out the right regulatory framework for cryptocurrencies. It's important to remember that there are a lot of policies in place today. The on-ramps and off-ramps are regulated for anti-money laundering purposes. Uh, there's uh, sanctions requirements. Uh, there's securities laws that apply in certain instances. But what we really need is a fresh look at the regulatory space, we need to figure out a framework for stable coins. We need to figure out a framework for regulating the spot markets. And I think the events that have happened in the market in the in the 
you know, past few weeks and months have really focused policymaker attention on trying to figure out a path forward. A path forward, and especially as you look at who has claimed to the assets at the end of the day in the event of bankruptcies or other forms of unwinding, how do regulators start to make sure that it is indeed the consumers that are protected instead of the investors in these companies? And what types of uh, tensions does that create moving forward? Well, listen, I think this is the first time we've seen a couple of the um, larger companies in this space go bankrupt where there's actually questions about customer assets. So I think that there are some space, places in bankruptcy law that we need to look at this. I think more importantly, though, we need to have a regulatory home for these types of or, you know, these types of entities that are doing consumer lending. Um, we have not seen in the past uh, very many crypto uh, native organizations be able to get bank charters. Um, I think we need to have a discussion about how can we open it up so that when you're dealing with customer deposits, that there is some sort of regulatory framework in place. You know, you're really tied in with both the regulators, the lawmakers, and the companies themselves. Realistically, we've been waiting years, and there has been very little movement <laughs> on that front. So realistically, how soon can you see it now that you're seeing customers, retail investors, lose hundreds of millions of dollars? Well, I think if you look at um, kind of the overall timeline, it, I, the key moment for getting this done is going to be 2023. I, I think that most regulators have done everything they can within uh, the, the authority that they already have to provide guidance in this space. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, but what the sort of consensus is, is we really need a new framework, one that Congress has to put in the law via legislation. And we've been very excited to see proposals like the Lemus Gillibrand proposal and others that are trying to look at these uh, questions in a thoughtful and comprehensive way. I think the political reality is we're not going to see very much traction uh, this year, because the election is coming up, there's only a few um, legislative weeks left and something of this magnitude just simply isn't going to move. But what we're doing at the Blockchain Association is with our members are meeting every single week to go deep on a different topic and, and finally sort of coalesce around what we think we can live with as an industry and mm. so that we can come to the table with solutions. So I think there's a lot of work, a lot of discussion, uh, definitely a lot of legal bills, I can tell you that much. Uh, and we're, we're really working hard to try to bring actionable solutions to the table. And I think 2023 is going to be the year that this all comes together. What about other jurisdictions? Is Europe leading way in some way? There are other regional driving forces that are leading the pack versus the U.S.? Yeah, no, Europe made uh, quite a bit of, um, uh, I guess you could call it progress. Uh, uh, last month, uh, they passed um, a, a sort of a more comprehensive uh, look that impacts uh, legislation that um, looks at both stable coins uh, as well as uh, spot markets and things of that nature. I, I don't think the way that they've landed on um, their policies are ideal, but they, they have moved forward. And I think that's another um, factor that will put more pressure on the U.S. Congress in order for them to move forward with 
with a more comprehensive legislative solution. How hard is it for regulators to really either make customers whole or keep track of client funds when so many companies are deciding to domicile elsewhere? Dubai is becoming a huge hub for crypto firms, Hong Kong, the Bahamas even. So how then do customers in the U.S. stay protected? Well, customers in the U.S. should be operating with U.S.-based entities that are licensed to operate here in the U.S. Um, you know, you there is technology where you can get around any sort of, uh, you know, geofencing that's put into place. And we've seen quite a bit of this actually in the derivatives market because there is demand in the U.S. for more access to derivatives. And only way to get around that is to use a VPN and go to some overseas exchange. So I think actually having better, clearer rules of the road here at the U.S. will keep consumers protected here, um, and and you know make sure that the um, the companies here in the U.S. that are offering these services have the ability to do to meet the demand that their customers, um, you know, the, the services that they want and, and do that in a way that's much, much safer. Kristen, have the companies, have you been discussing with companies sort of their moral obligations going forward as well? Well, they might not be legal obligations, but many will say, look, this push towards saying it was democratization, this fervor around this FOMO feeling around advertising, particularly at the peak when we're all looking at, you know, adverts that happen to be around the Super Bowl. Have there been lessons learned there? And is there a, an element of self-regulation going forward that they don't get themselves into this sorts of situation again, where, yes, you can read the small print, but really they should have been more transparent that there isn't FDIC protection and the like? Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's um, the DeFi protocols itself, the true decentralized finance, that didn't break. And even with va vast changes in prices and a tremendous amount of market activity going on, uh, the DeFi protocols themselves, uh, they continued to operate, right? That's just software. Uh, where we run into trouble is situations where we have centralized entities that are taking possession um, of other funds, um, and also where we've had lending that's gone on in a way that's levered, you know, multiple times over. But that's really been where the, the problems um, have have been. And so I think that what we have to do is look at how do we put regulation on those centralized entities um, and what are their obligations. But the underlying technology, these software-driven DeFi platforms, uh, those continued to work just fine. And in fact, um, you know, even under tremendous amount of stress, they all continued to perform. One other thing I would point out, though, is that the industry itself is swooping in to make sure that customers are harmed as little as yeah. possible. Um, We've seen Sam Bankman-Fried at FTX, uh, yeah. who's come in and been a backstop to many of these companies. I mean, I've been joking, we don't need Uncle Sam because we have Uncle Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> um, that is obviously not sustainable, but yes. it's very much, you know, sort of like J.P. Morgan back, uh, you know, in 1907, uh, saying, hey, we don't, we see the bigger picture and we want to get through this turbulent time so we can yeah. get on building all of the services that we think are going to improve uh, so many lives. 
We thank you so much, Kristen Smith of Blockchain Association, along, of course, with our own Shanali Basak on all things crypto. Meanwhile, let's get some breaking news because it was one of the biggest SPACs, of course, special purpose acquisition companies, Tontine Holdings. It was, of course, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. It's going to return that $4 billion of money it raised to capital to shareholders. CEO Bill Ackman is telling us in a letter to its shareholders at the moment. And, of course, this is after they failed to find an acquisition to take out. So the clock is ticking for many of these SPACs, and many of them are still without an acquisition in the field. We'll have much more on that. But later, we also want to talk a little bit about Prime. Is it, well, past its Prime with inflation persisting? Or will Amazon's big day be the number one event as it always is? We discuss. This is Bloomberg. Amazon Prime Day. It's this week, which means the internet was going to be a frenzy over limited time deals and exclusive Prime member-only prices. Joining us now, what to expect, Spencer Soper, who covers Amazon. And of course, it's a difficult time. Inflation is real. Is it going to be more expensive? Will you still going to be able to get the deals that we used to? Yeah, it's a great question. You have this conflict, right? So you have, uh, it should be a great day for a sale because uh, so many shoppers are trying to fight inflation by looking for deals, but then, you know, merchants and brands and manufacturers, they're all dealing with rising costs as well. So they don't want to offer steep discounts because they want to be worried of the profit margins. So it's going to attract a lot of people. They're going to spend a lot of money. E-marketers uh, estimating up about 17%, but mm. they're probably not going to get as much as as much with their money as, as they'd like to. Yeah, we're all sort of used to that. We're spending the same amount, but we're getting less and less with it. To that end, how much are they managing to bring people in more into the actual prime overall offering? They've obviously been doing some interesting offerings, purchasing, you know, Grubhub was the latest one that we understand they're going to be teaming with. How much are people committed to this? That's a really great question. And we're definitely seeing signs that, that uh, Amazon's finally hitting the ceiling in the, in, in the U.S. on prime membership. There are some numbers that came out last week that they, uh, there are about 172 million Prime members, you know, so that could include multiple people under one subscription in a household, but 172 million mem members uh, in the U.S. as of June 30, which is unchanged from January. Now, granted, they added 30 million in 2020 and 30 million in 2021, so they saw this huge leap during the pandemic, but there's definitely signs that it's, you know, leveling off, and we'll see if it starts fading if people start uh, looking to cut their budgets in the mm -hmm. in the face of inflation. Yeah, just to that end, do you think Amazon is priming its, pardon the pun, is prepping itself basically to become even more necessary in this time of inflationary pressure, or is it a subscription that we're all more likely to cut? Well, the, the uh, uh, they definitely want to be absolutely necessary, and that's why they keep building things in on it, like video and that sort of thing, so that as you're looking at your budget, you'll think, well, do we really need Amazon? Prime for the delivery, but you know what? We watch the video too, where we get these other perks as well. Now, now they threw in Grubhub, like you mentioned. You know, they're just trying to pile things on to make it, um, uh, you know, it, as compelling as possible. As people are looking to cut things out of their mm. out of their budget, but granted, they just raised it by twenty bucks, one hundred thirty nine dollars a year. Some people might be 
be thinking it's time to uh, cut Amazon loose. Oh. We all keep reflecting on our budgets and seeing what's the most integral. Kind of depends on the programming as well, I'm sure. Bloomberg Spencer Soper going to be bringing us, well, what the hottest deal is. Apparently, according to my producer, it's makeup brushes, lotion with collagen. Who knew? Hmm. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, an exclusive with Jess Lee, partner at Sequoia Capital. Her advice to founders on how to navigate the current market conditions. You do not want to miss it. And don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal, as well as online on Apple, Spotify and iHeart. From New York, this is Bloomberg. This is your Tech News Briefing for Tuesday, July 5th. I'm Julie Chang for The Wall Street Journal, filling in for Zoe Thomas. A few weeks ago, we talked about a Google engineer who said he believed one of the company's artificial intelligence chatbots had become sentient. The news prompted no small measure of public reaction. What is going on here? I mean, how on earth... Can they have conversations? I mean, Lambda passed the Turing test. Well, I hate to say it, Annette, but this really is not sentient artificial intelligence. This is a future message for Skynet. I never insulted robots, okay? Jokes aside, the incident does raise the question. How close are we really to machines achieving consciousness? AI technology does permeate our daily lives, and companies have been investing in this area to keep pushing its boundaries after all. But what is it actually capable of? Our reporter Karen Howe has been speaking with industry leaders and experts about this, and she joins me now. Hi Karen, thanks for coming on the show. Hi Julie, thanks so much for having me. What are some of the more ambitious goals that companies have with artificial intelligence? Where do they want this tech to go? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. In, I think, the AI industry, there's sort of a split that's happened where some of the larger companies are much more focused on just very practical use cases, like really unsexy back office logistics type AI. But then there's this sort of sci-fi element to AI development as well, where AI as a scientific field was actually originally founded on this sort of wild premise to try and recreate all of human intelligence or create a super intelligence, something that will ultimately be able to do everything better than humans. And the term that people use for this kind of really ambitious sci-fi like AI is artificial general intelligence. And a lot of companies have been pouring money into this tech. 
Google, for instance, has been betting big on language generation systems. Ironically, it was two of its own engineers that came out and warned about the dangers of AI,、uh, Margaret Mitchell and Timnit Gebru. They were co-leads on the ethical AI team at Google. What have these dissenters been saying? What Mitchell and Gebru warned was, as we continue to see these systems. Perform these like seemingly really human-like things. Generate essays. Start talking in this very human-like way in the form of a chatbot. People are going to start trusting these systems far more than they actually deserve to be trusted, because in AI research, there's sort of an understanding that. No matter how much these systems have been able to mimic human-like speech, that doesn't actually mean that they understand what they're saying. It doesn't mean that they understand what humans are saying. These systems are just good at making associations between words, which is ultimately what helps you extract the right results from the web in response to a search query, but. For the average public user, they're not going to really understand that gap, and so they were kind of warning at the time: the more that we have this gap, the more it actually becomes dangerous because people are going to start using these systems in places that they're not supposed to use them. They're going to start trusting them more than they want. So, an example that they gave in a paper they wrote at the time about this. Was Facebook's AI system in 2017 mistranslated "Good morning" in Arabic to hurt them in English and attack them in Hebrew, and it actually led to the arrest of a Palestinian man by Israeli police because they just believed the translation and didn't actually check with. An Arabic-speaking colleague, what it actually said, and it took them a while to actually realize the error. Facebook said in response that they're getting better and better every day, and that these AI systems have improved since then. Yeah, and this idea of perception versus reality with AI, and the issue that Gibru and Mitchell brought up, it. Oddly clashed with an incident surrounding another engineer at Google, Blake Lemoine. Lemoine was essentially chatting with an experimental chat box called Lambda and became convinced that Lambda had become sentient. He even believed it deserved legal representation.、Mm-hmm. The important caveat to this. Is that Lemoine specifically says that he is a mystic, incorporating aspects of Christianity and、um, spiritual practices such as meditation. So when he talks about Lambda being sentient, he's specifically talking in a religious capacity as a mystic priest, not in his capacity as a scientist. And so he hired a lawyer for Lambda. To talk to Lambda about Lambda giving consent to be part of these experiments to be used in this way, 
Since then, Google has come out and really been adamant that Lambda is not sentient. And it's important to note that in mainstream consensus, scientific consensus, it's also considered an incredibly fringe opinion that AI systems could become sentient because ultimately they're just data processing machines. So Google came out and said, this machine's not sentient. The scientific community has come out and also said, no, machines are not sentient. But Blake Lemoyne's story spread like wildfire. What were the real-life implications of this and the gap that exists between perception versus reality when it comes to AI? Yeah, so researchers definitely were alarmed by how much this narrative took hold because it once again reveals this really, really big gap between perception and reality. And it's not just dangerous because of some of the examples that were raised, like Facebook's mistranslation. It's also dangerous because ultimately policymakers are part of the public. They're part of the people that become beholden to this perception gap. And so increasingly, more and more of the regulations or proposed regulations that are addressing AI harms are starting to specifically just target harms that come from AI systems from being hyper-competent. So things like discrimination, manipulation, this inherently assumes that these AI systems are really good at what they do, but what they've sort of left out of the conversation is harms that come from AI systems just not working. All right, that was our reporter, Karen Howe. Karen, thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today's tech news briefing. If you want more tech stories, check out our website, wsj.com. And if you like our show, please rate and review it. You can do that wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julie Chang for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening. Audio Welcome to the Influential CEO Podcast, where we talk about all things high performance inner work and mindset, because we must be able to lead ourselves in order to lead a revolution and experience the freedom we desire. Welcome to another episode of the Influential CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Rasky. As always, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite platform and download the Influential app on your device so you always have this podcast right in your pocket. And be sure to head on over to StaceyRasky.com to get information on our upcoming live events in Tampa. So you get Influential live, the experience, the transformation. Uh, we do it quarterly. So come join us here in Tampa at our next one. So I am super, super stoked for today's guest. Uh, he is someone who follows my own heart in terms of 
emotional intelligence, emotional prosperity, um, uh, transforming trauma into triumph. Um, he's done that for himself and is somebody that I had the um, blessing of a meeting in Miami on set for the television show that we are both a part of, uh, Four Days to Save the World. So join me in a welcoming the amazing Sean Vera. Welcome. Thanks, Stacey. It's good to see you. Uh, you saw me in the event. I'll be there. November, Veterans Day. There. Yeah, yeah, tenth and eleventh, November tenth and eleventh is the last one for twenty twenty two. So I love the weather in Utah starts to get cold around that time, so it's a perfect time to go visit Miami. It, exactly, exactly. Florida is amazing for the for the November and the February events that we do. Everybody loves to come come down and visit. I'm like August is kind of a tough one. I'm like it's hot as Satan's balls, you know. It's kind of hot and sticky. So. <laughs> but we'll include the beach day, so you know it's it kind of makes it more fun. <laughs> So, but oh, yeah, not yeah, gonna... I had fun on set. I thought, I thought, uh, yeah, that whole experience was amazing. And, you know, continuing to be involved in projects like that are fun. But I think definitely, you know, there was this energy that was coming from you. And we ended up being able to hang out and have a lot of amazing conversations over those few days on set. So that was great. That's true, right? I mean, I, I think there's some amazing opportunities that, that, like that show where it attracts like-minded people such as ourselves to those types of projects. And then we get to connect and be like, oh my God, like-minded person, let's make some magic happen in the world. It's <laughs> you know, yeah, a opportunity. Show, it's like a global, you know, global networking platform because there, there's people from all over the country flying in. So I'm still going to keep in touch with a lot of people. I was recently in Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Amsterdam, and I had people from, you know, all those parts of the world saying, hey, what are you doing here? I can't believe it. I wasn't able to connect with them in person. The timing did meet up. I was like, what are you doing here? This is crazy. So it's nice to, you know, feel like now there's people that have the same sort of approach to life and, you know, emotional health and prosperity. And, and you know, for me, I think there's a connection we all have in, going through hard things and the way we metabolize those hard things or, you know, the way we put it is um, our goal with my foundation is to help specifically youth transform trauma into triumph. And I think, you know, meeting you and meeting a lot of other people on set and, and throughout that process, uh, it's remarkable that no matter where you live, uh, you find people who have been through hard things and they use that as jet fuel, you know, some of them. And I think our goal is to help people that, that are struggling or have struggled or they're in the middle of it now or they're, you know, we'll all face something down the road. We can say, hey, there's a different path than, you know, some of these other unhealthy coping mechanisms. There's a way to, you know, process it, feel those feelings and then go, hey, you know what? I'm stronger because of this, as, as crazy as that might sound, but I'm going to use this, um, I guess, as you say, and I, I don't know, can we swear on this podcast, but there's like a certain badassery that you, that you have. And I think some people use that as like, hey, these hard things have happened. And although we don't want them to, and, um, you know, certainly people go through some really, really antagonizing and hard times. Um, there truly is, I think, a lens and perspective to look at those things, to transform those things into massive triumphs in our lives, whether that's emotional triumph or professional triumph or relational, you know, triumph. I think there's a way for us to use those things. And sometimes they do happen for us and not to us. So 
it was incredible to meet you and have this kind of ongoing friendship and professional relationship that's been beneficial. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I would love for you to take a moment and uh, introduce yourself to the audience, share with them a bit about who you are, what you do, uh, who you serve. And then of course, we'll have the opportunity to get into the juicy backstory because in terms of turning trauma into triumph, I mean, you are absolutely a master of that. It's why you and I connected so deeply because obviously we've both done that um, in a really powerful way because obviously our power truly does come from our pain. And I, some of us are great at taking that and turning it into that jet fuel and allowing that to be this forward facing momentum. But I do remember when I was still very victim of my past and, you know, it was like, like a light switch, you know, you just flip your perspective. It's like, am I going forward? Or am I constantly tripping myself trying to go back? Yeah. Yep, I agree. Um, I, I mean, I'll be brief. I feel like compared to you, my like who I am is relatively boring. The most exciting thing about me is I'm a father of five kids. I have four boys and a girl, 16 years old, down to four and a half. They're the best things that have ever happened to me. Um, I love being a dad. You know, with four boys, we're always doing something crazy. We're outside all the time. Um, I, I work with my 16-year-old. He does a lot of photo and video for me. I have a healthcare business, a real estate business. Um, a really small ad agency. I really just, you know, um, love that aspect of kind of what you're doing, podcasting and, and capturing um, like video and photo and things like that. So we have a small ad agency. And then, you know, I think what I was born to do is the Love Heart Foundation. So um, yeah, I, I am a big, I don't know, I, mean, I think diet and nutrition, that's a big part of my lifestyle. I think that plays a massive part in, in happiness and being mentally healthy. So um, I'm always trying to find ways to eat healthy enough and work out just enough that I can um, eat as many cookies and donuts as I want. That's my big weak spot for sure. Baked goods of all kinds. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm a serial entrepreneur and, you know, who, who we serve, I guess that, that really comes down to, I think, you know, before we get into the backstory, I think that's one day we all die. And I think I've, I have this acute awareness of that because the last 13 years in 2009, I started a healthcare company and we're an in-home healthcare provider. So we, it's geriatric, it's all senior based, 65 and older. Um, and we see death a lot. We see, you know, what happens to people that don't take care of themselves during their younger years. And we see what happens when you've got a really strong, you know, mentally capable 90 year old. So for me in the last, you know, 14 years, 13 years being in this industry, I'm reminded every day to take care of myself, and to do things that matter because there's a certain, you know, 40 is young, I think 50 is young, 60 is young, I think, but there's a time when there's no, there's no time on the clock. It's just game over. And so for me, I think to like sum up who I am is I really, I, I really do want my life to matter to some degree. And I feel the way that, that I feel that it matters is to help as many people as I can. And I've been through some stuff and I think that perspective can help a lot of people who might be going through similar things now. Um, but ultimately, uh, yeah, when the clock runs out, I just don't want to have any regrets. So I'll eat anything on vacation. I'll try the things, right? Like when I would go somewhere crazy, I'm like, I will eat anything one time. I will jump off the bridge with the bungee cord. I'll jump off the helicopter with the bungee cord. I'll skydive, dive with sharks, whatever it is. As long as I'm not putting myself in like real, real danger. So I love my kids too much. Um, I'll pretty much do and try anything. I'll travel anywhere. I've been to Africa living in the tribes of the Masai Mara and, you know, I've 
drank blood with them and ate raw organs. And, you know, it's just crazy. I've had some really crazy experiences. Maybe we'll get into it, but um, yeah, just saying yes to stuff that I probably shouldn't and really enjoying it and trying not to have any regrets down the road. You know, it's, it's funny that you bring that up though, because I'm the same way. It's where it's really savoring and maximizing the potential of experiencing this life, like truly living it. And I notice that for a lot of us who come from more intense types of trauma or have some of those challenges around mental health, like bipolar or some of those other, um, you know, symptoms that are associated with those things. Like we have this very intense shadow side and the, and the more we heal and incorporate that part of ourselves, the more it fuels really moving forward in this energy of just thriving, right? Really experiencing it, having a higher risk tolerance to savor the, I mean, really just what's possible. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. Um, I, I, that is my biggest fear. I, you know, I said, I'll do anything. I'll eat anything. But, but I do have, you know, I do have fears. I don't, I try not to let it run my life. I think at times it certainly does, but that's my biggest fear every day. I think it's, you know, how do I not leave regret on the table? And, and that doesn't always mean trying to make the most amount of money. It doesn't mean, you know, trying to look the coolest or acquire the most things. I think it, and sometimes it just means I'm going to really slow down today and, you know, hang out with my kids for a little while longer, or I'm going to go home early and and love on my significant other, you know, I'm taking Wednesday off to, to surprise them and take them to lunch. I, I think those are the moments that matter, you know, started this healthcare company because of my grandfather, who was like, you know, essentially my dad, he's my biggest father figure and an incredible human being. And he passed away a few years ago now, but, uh, man, so many people showed up to his funeral that just, he made such a massive impact in their lives. He was never wealthy. He had a really big family. Um, but he would, I mean, the literal shirt off of his back, his home was open during holidays for people. And so I think, you know, everyone can sort of make their own de definition, which is great of what it means to have their life matter. Um, but I think it is, it, you know, it's challenging yourself a little bit, but it's just, uh, showing up, I guess, for yourself in a way and the, and those around you, it's probably the most meaningful is doing something for others. I think. Sometimes we get lost in making money. And I know too many people that have a ton of commas behind the digits and, you know, in their bank account. And they're some of the most miserable people that I know. They're some of the people I talk with the most about mental health. And once they figure out their purpose of helping others and, and giving back, that's when I think they start to really figure out that they, you know, they find self-worth and they find value in their own life. So true. So true. It really is about activating that. Thing. I mean, it's funny because, you know, kind of the conversation around purpose, so many people 
really get it confused. I think they're like, but I don't know, like I'm called for so much more, but I don't know what my purpose is. And I'm like, no, I think the, everyone's purpose is the same, right? It's, it's really, it's like just being of highest service or the, one of the best explanations I've heard is truly like our purpose is just to create like, and that's it. Like, we're just, we're all creators in our own right. And to create whatever that highest expression of our soul is to help impact and influence the world to leave it better than before. Right. And I think it's where people get so, um, stuck is what does that look like for you? And I always tell everybody, it was like, whatever feels the easiest and most effortless, that's your zone of genius. That's exactly where you shine because it's not easy and effortless for other people. And that's how you're going to be able to impact the world. Yeah. But for Don't, you, do you agree with this? Sorry. No, you're fine. I want perspective really quick. Do you agree that, you know, let's say on the note of that your purpose feeling natural and what feels easiest to you in those things. Um, if, it, it, I give this advice a lot. So I'm interesting. I'm interested in what you think about it. I tell people a lot, look, if you can do something and make $200,000 a year, which actually is not a lot of money, unfortunately, anymore today, but let's, you know, let's say $200,000 and you do something that you don't like, right? So you lock your Mercedes, you walk into the building and it's a job that you hate, but you're making $200,000 a year versus waking up, rolling out of bed, completely on fire for a job that makes you $75,000 a year, but you love it. You're ecstatic. I point people towards a 75K a year doing something that you love versus a job offer that makes it 200 grand that they hate. Yes, I completely agree because I did both. <laughs> <laughs> when I got out of college, I got recruited by the pharmaceutical company and I had two job offers. One that was one of them. And it was the quote unquote, safer, smarter, smarter, you know, based on (laughs) programming, the smarter option, because it had better pay, better benefits. And what was interesting too, is at the time thinking about corporate in the sense of, gosh, it's so stable, you know, it's like guaranteed this and that, whatever, whatever, which is hilarious. Cause eventually I ended up leaving before they did all of their layoffs, but I mean, eventually they ended up just shutting the entire place down in in an industry where people just had this false sense of security, but it was the most toxic environment. It was horrible. And I felt so much better having my own business, even when I was broke. Even when I was making, when my business was costing me money, I was more fulfilled. That's right. I was more fulfilled in that than I ever was doing whatever it was at the corporate. And like, I get entrepreneurship isn't for everyone, but even finding a job, whether it's working in somebody else's company, such as yours or mine. And really feeling that emotional connection to something bigger than ourselves or just working for somewhere that has good core values that align with your core values and light you up. Like that's cool too, but just pick based on what is feeding your soul over the dollar amount. Yeah. Well, and I think the interesting part of that is if you end up to, you know, whether it's a business where, you know, you, you could use that same example of two jobs. One of them is 
you know, pays you less and is a lot more fulfilling, like you said. But I think if you take that thing that's more fulfilling and it really fires you up, you, you climb those ranks quicker. I think you become more successful as an employee or, you know, in a career or as an entrepreneur by doing, by taking those steps back and saying, Hey, this is, you know, a third of the pay, but I love it. And I think eventually as you do things that you love, there's an energy return to that. There's an inspiration. You wake up, you know, rocketing out of bed versus like living for Friday. And all of a sudden that thing that you love now does make you 200, 300, Four hundred thousand dollars a year because you're so good at it because it's it's it is sort of aligned with your purpose and, and what makes you happy. But I see the reverse a lot, and it's interesting because I work in healthcare and I and I work in real estate a lot, so I'm helping really successful people find investment properties. And the amount of attorneys and doctors and dentists and CEOs that, like I said, massive amounts of you know financial means, but they they're lives are just a mess. Their marriages are not strong. Their self-image is not great. I think, you know, and a lot of them are like, I think I became a doctor because my mom and dad wanted me. My dad was, so that's why I am. And, you know, again, like we need these incredible professionals and, and it's interesting now talking about emotional prosperity. Um, not that I'm the foremost expert in this area, but I'm very interested in it. And, you know, starting to work with James Hadlock here soon to become as you know, a certified emotional prosperity coach, but it's interesting to be able to have some, you know, buddy conversations with them and, and sort of point them in the direction of addressing certain things in their lives and helping them say, Hey, yeah, you are a doctor, but is there, you know, what about this industry gets you excited? Is there something on the side, you know, maybe, um, having a boat dealership, there's a guy that's going to put some money into a mastercraft dealership here in Utah that exists and needs some money. And so he, now he's like, I love being a doctor more because it's giving me the ability to do these things that I love. And so I think that's really important that, you know, that saying to me resonates pretty much every day that everybody dies, but not everybody lives. And I think that's like vibrating inside me every day. And I'm like, I, that would be the biggest waste of whatever this life is for. Sometimes it's the most, I'm like, why are we here? What is the whole purpose of all of this? But at the end of the day, I think it is to learn from each other and get back to one another. I mean, I just hope that I live. I hope that if nothing else, I can inspire a few people. I can teach my kids how to be good human beings and be ambitious and, and contribute to their communities. But I hope that I, you know, I lived and I didn't just clock in and clock out, live for Friday and dread Monday. Mm, so true, right? There's such an, a power to this emotional and energetic currency that people yeah. over, overlook right? Then truly being in that place of abundance, because we just get really beat down in this place of, you know, fear, uh, fear-based programming that like money is it, like it's the end right. all be all for everything. Right. And it's like, I mean, every single person that fell into that trap, you know, and that had the opportunity to break out of it is always like, oh dear Lord, there's so much better and bigger on the other side of that. Like you yeah. don't have to stay there, but we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into your amazing and powerful transformation journey and really get into what your organization Love Hard is all about. So for those of you listening, I'll see you back in here in a moment. Go deeper by grabbing your copy of my best-selling book, Be a Boss and Fire That Bitch. 
by going to firethatbitchbook.com. Welcome back to this amazing conversation with Sean Vieira. We are have been talking about, I mean, gosh, so much, you know, this emotional currency and really um, focusing on following what lights up our soul. But I know you and I, we both come from quite a intense background. I mean, it's never about, um, you know, comparing stories at all. I think there's always just opportunities for us to educate and empower people when we share our stories. And so I would love for you to share a bit about your trauma recovery journey and how that has then fueled you creating this amazing organization. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to share. I think, um, you know, growing up, I, I had a really amazing mom. Um, my parents were divorced early. At, you know, I think I was in kindergarten when my dad I was in Utah. And I'm born in California. That's where my dad's from. My mom's from Utah. Um, and he's in the Air Force, so that's how they met. So they, they separated him, and it was, it was a really traumatic separation. Like, the day that he left, it was, you know, very, very traumatic. And so um, he left, went back to California. My, my uh, mom stayed in Cal, uh, excuse me, in Utah, in Kaysville, Utah. And um, that really started, like, a huge success and succession of traumas. Um, she remarried eventually somebody who ended up being an alcoholic. He was, you know, really hot temper, terrifying to be around, unfortunately. Um, and my mom was overwhelmed. She had two kids and then she had, you know, two more with my stepdad. And so, you know, she's this mom who, who's like going through a divorce and now, you know, remarried a couple of years later. And I was the oldest and there's a family friend who wanted to help. And so, you know, this, this guy who's 10 years older than me essentially, um, was grooming me. And so I, you know, as I'm growing up through, through these elementary years, um, mom and stepdad get married. We moved to Sandy, Utah, which is where, you know, I essentially have grown up and I spent summers in California with my dad. Dad was a great guy. We had a lot of fun. He just was never around. So I'm kind of stuck between this, you know, this family friend who really shouldn't have been trusted. And then a stepdad who I was avoiding at all costs because it, there was so much physical violence. Um, and so I kind of just survived. And I didn't know, I didn't know it at the time, but I, you know, I was in constant fight or flight mode, kind of this like fog. I wasn't able to like most kids that are going through middle school and high school plan my life out. It wasn't like, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? It's like, how do I get through today? How, you know, how do I not get abused? How do, you know, how do I, survive essentially and so there's pretty much every type of abuse that you can imagine which is you know it's hard to say but um it's all capped off by my dad who's back junior year of high school and ends up you know we create this relationship we're hanging out again he's in utah which is great um you know riding his motorcycles around he was a harley guy an air force mechanic so he would fix cars and camp like the super talented guy so we always had like Corvettes laying around and, and stuff that he was fixing and flipping and he had a paint shop so he could paint stuff. And um, so we were, you know, just doing fun stuff and he's finally here, we're creating this relationship. And then, you know, I want to say it was a year after he moved here and we really felt like we got our dad back. He ended up committing suicide right before I started my senior year. And so um, 
all of my trauma was sort of like capped off by my dad's suicide. And I had a really incredible group of friends come in, the cool kids at my high school and scoop me up and say, Hey, you're with us now. And, um, you know, I think they saw that I was like locked in my room for three weeks after his, his death. And, um, they said, you're with us now. And I, you know, was adopted by this really incredible group of, of people. And, um, they were members of the church of Latter-day Saints, um, church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, um, it, it ended up showing me kind of different perspective because I knew of that church, but I wasn't super active. My grandparents were who I adored. Um, and I played basketball with that group. It's a very, you know, prominent religion here in Utah and, and I guess throughout the country and the world. But, um, you know, this, this Christian group, I wasn't really my thing. And uh, through my dad's death, I'm like, I just want to get out of here. Utah to me was such a traumatic place. So after I graduated high school, I did, you know, I did have a pretty fun year. But again, I didn't know that this trauma had, was having an effect on me, essentially. I wasn't able to show up emotionally like I think I could have. I wasn't able to plan. I barely graduated high school and I didn't have any thoughts of what I ever wanted to do. Um, so I ended up serving a two year service mission in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, fell in love with helping people, um, come home. My brother is addicted to heroin and I'm like on fire to help people. So we kind of took the trauma two different ways, right? He coped with drugs and he's been that way for 22 years. And, and I coped with like, I want to be anything but things like my past. I want to be kind. I want to be loving. I want to help people. And I don't want screaming or yelling, which is what I was so accustomed to. I don't want violence. I never turned to drugs or violence or alcohol, luckily. Um, and so uh, then I got married right away after I, after I came back and um, was really like encapsulated in this religion that, that uh, I had just served a mission for. And there's a, you know, there's a lot there. Um, I'm now recently divorced, you know, almost through that divorce process after 15 years. So that marriage just ended a couple of years ago. Um, and it's been a lengthy process to legally finalize it. But, you know, that, that trauma, I think, pushed me towards um, coping through just like numbness. I think I, I just was a people pleaser. I was a doormat. I wanted to keep the peace everywhere, which is hard when you're an entrepreneur, which is what I became when I got home. Cause I love to solve problems and I love to help people and, um, you can't, you know, stay on a mission forever. So I started a nonprofit where we built water retention dams in Kenya, Africa in 2009, um, and did some other things. We did some fundraisers actually with, um, pros from the Fuji's for Haiti when that whole, um, when that whole hurricane happened out there. So I've done some like really fun things in, in advertising and, and, and growing up, but I just wanted to help people. But I experienced some trauma later on in life, which was about two years ago, right around when my marriage um, started ending. And, and that marital trauma, kind of the betrayal trauma, um, helped me understand that I needed more than QPC or couch coaching. I needed more than just sitting down with a therapist, and which, mind you, I had done with bishops, I had done with some therapists, and talking about the, the, my dad's death and some of these things that I was struggling with, it was good, but it never did anything foundationally or functionally for me. Um, other than sometimes make me feel worse than I did before because I'm either right. living like exposure therapy. I'm like, I was not thinking about it and now I am. And so, you know, fast forward to, you know, these incredibly hard things, but, you know, it's functional. I built businesses and then we had kids and I think, you know, we had a, a pretty good marriage. She, my, my ex is an incredible person. 
um, the marriage just didn't work out for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I love my kids to death, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I've got really incredible friends. I, I'm able to, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I've, you know, been helping produce reality TV and been on a few episodes of that and, and all these different things. But here I am carrying this trauma, massive trauma. And it manifests in like really subtle ways for me, luckily. But my whole life, I'm like, why did I go through this stuff? Not that I'm better than anybody and it should have been somebody else or why me, but I'm like, am I really just have supposed to have gone through trauma literally every day of my young adult life until I basically graduated and then be, like heal and be okay and not tell anybody about it? Or am I healed? Am I not healed? What's the purpose of all of this? And then I experienced what to me was as um, devastating as my dad's suicide, which was, you know, sort of this um, marital trauma. And it was then that I realized I, I had too many employees. I had five incredible kids and I could not show up for them for 12 months. I could, I didn't, my company ran itself. I trusted my partner. I trusted my administrator to run the healthcare business. And we were in two states. We're in Salt Lake and, and three cities in Utah and we're in Las Vegas. And so, you know, sizable operation and I could not function emotionally, mentally. I was, you know, basically destroyed. And again, I turned to the gym. I turned to eating well. I turned to physical fitness. I turned to even therapy. And I think as dudes, we don't want to say that I'm not okay. We don't want to, you know, tell our kids we love them or like tell our homies we love them or any of these things because it means we're not manly. We're not macho. And in sep you know, separating from my my wife or my ex-wife, um, I started to, you know, obviously make new friends and experience new things. And I ended up discovering EMDR therapy, which is trauma therapy, um, eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing is what EMDR stands for. And I did some sessions of that and all of these geographical triggers from the marital trauma and my dad's suicide and all this stuff, 20 something years of carrying this trauma as a child and then the suicide and even the most recent, which was really affecting me, the other stuff I felt like kind of just had allowed it to process on its own and metabolize. But that stuff that was really like suffocating me, EMDR eliminated it like that for me to the point where one day I couldn't drive past a specific part of town because of this geographical trauma that was devastating. Um, to after leaving that 30, no, it was an hour session, I literally could have no problem camping out in the parking lot of this place. And so I'm like, this is the most crazy thing I've ever seen. And what, what happened was leading into how Love Heart started was all of these people that I just mentioned to you, the doctors, the dentists, these professionals, these CEOs and entrepreneurs that I'm friends with, they saw me when I was really struggling for 12, about a 12 month period. And then they saw me after EMDR and I started to resurface socially and I was able to like go back out again and they're like, you're different. Something's happened. What's going on? This isn't you being strong. This is something different. And I said, you guys, I've never been more happy in my entire life. I, I said, I feel like it's voodoo work. It's not, but it's called EMDR. I don't know what it is. It works like so fast and it literally has eliminated the stuff that's been crushing me for the last 12 months. Oh, and by the way, my dad's suicide doesn't bother me like it used to. And I've been able to reprocess so many things to where I wake up happy. I go to bed happy. I'm able to be myself. And, and the, the kicker for me was I was able to stand up for myself. I was able to say, 
I'm not okay being treated this way. I'm not okay having these, you know, these things said to me or being in these types of friendships or relationships any longer. And as interesting as it might sound, it gave me the ability to actually leave a relationship and a marriage that I don't think was serving either one of us. And I don't think I would have ever left. I think we both would have just tried to figure it out um, because that's what you do in, in that religion is you just stay forever, right? You're married for eternity and you just don't leave. And even though it can be very unfulfilling and unhappy and sometimes unhealthy, that's the cultural and religious pressure there. And so it gave me basically my life back. And it did so in about six sessions, eight sessions maybe of an hour over a couple of months. And people were, they were like, tell me exactly what that was. I need it. I need it. I need it. And people started DMing me. People started texting me. They were calling me. Hey, what is it? Can you point me in the right direction? How did you do it? What was it like? So I started posting on social media, um, getting to the punchline, and people started really resonating. I was not on social media until September of last year. And they're like, thank you so much for this. I really needed to hear your story of divorce or hear your story of your dad's suicide and how it affected you or see you as a man, you know, telling everybody that they're loved. So my content was really just kind of, kind of how I was feeling. And then I met somebody whose fiance had taken his life at, you know, 41, 42 years old. Um, and I thought, you know what, we've got to do something. My father took his life. Um, her, her name is Marcy and, and her fiance ended up, you know, taking his life. And together, um, she had done EMDR, which no one had ever heard of. And I had done EMDR. So when we became friends, I'm like, how do you know about EMDR? Nobody knows about it. I love it. She's like, no, I love it. How do you know about it? It changed my life after, after you know, my fiance took his life. It, it saved mine and it gave, me, it gave me so much back. And so together as friends, we thought, you know, we really want to bring this to the forefront. This can save lives. It really can eliminate the physical and emotional pain and suffering that is accompanied by trauma and i think everybody you could argue has been through some something traumatic um yeah. sometimes a lot of traumatic things all, all you know throughout their childhood sometimes just one really bad thing sometimes one small thing right but it's all trauma to us and so we started the love heart foundation and immediately got traction in utah school districts there's a really high teenage suicide rate here and um you know we believed that this trauma therapy could save teenage lives. And so we approached the Weaver School District um, about an hour and 10 minutes north of me here where I'm at. And um, the entire school district loved it. We are able to bring the certification to their existing district therapists. And um, now, you know, now 15,000 students have free access to this trauma therapy. We're finishing funding now where our foundation um, raises and then provides funding for the certification for the other half of the therapist. So every student, all 30,000 students in the school district will have free access to trauma therapy in their schools with the goal for, for us as a foundation is to graduate these kids mentally healthy. So for one, they can enjoy their school lives. Two, they don't carry that trauma into their next phase of life, right? So their spouses and their kids and their employers are not unintentional victims of their unaddressed trauma, but also they're not going to go shoot up schools because I, I, you know, I know this is a really sensitive subject and the Uvalde shooting um, really brought it to the forefront and it spurred, I'm on the, the governor's board of mental health for the state of Utah and I'm working with the Riverton mayor, uh, Mayor Staggs right now and trying to provide real solutions in cities and school districts right now because I, I've never seen, you know, I saw something that said, um, 
when, when my teacher taught me that guns kill people, I told her that my pencil failed my math test. And when you're mentally healthy, you don't pick up a gun and you don't shoot up a school. And when you're mentally healthy, you don't cut yourself. You don't, you don't kill yourself in my, in my opinion. Right. And I know that that's a really loaded topic and, and sensitive topic, but I feel I'm somewhat qualified having, you know, known people really close to me that have gone through that. And to be honest, I, I've had those thoughts. I suffer with depression. If you look at my social media content, I'm trying to talk about it as much as possible. You know, I'm happy most every single day, but I battle depression constantly. And, um, and so our foundation is really about destigmatizing trauma therapy, which has been the biggest game changer um, for me, for a lot, a lot, a lot of people that I know. I get messages all the time. We've been, we launched January 1st of this year. So it's only been, you know, six and a half months, but I've, I've gotten hundreds of messages that said, you've helped me from killing myself. You've helped my daughter. We've got my daughter back now. Um, she was suicidal. Now she's not. We, it's, it's been crazy. It's been amazing. I've been on TV for it again, working with the governor and different mayors. And, and so this foundation to me is coming, I think at the perfect time, but it's a way for me to be able to say, oh, maybe this is why, um, I went through these things is so that I, you know, I'll be that one vocal person who will get on a podcast and say, I was abused. I was neglected. Um, I went through really hard things and I'm okay. Somehow, some way I'm okay. And a big part of that is, um, this trauma therapy that we're trying to basically, you know, bring throughout the country to school districts everywhere. And it's really spreading throughout Utah like wildfire. So the foundation has just gotten a ton of traction and support and we've raised tens of thousands of dollars already. And we really have just gotten started. That is absolutely amazing. And I completely agree with you. I know you and I were talking about the power of EMDR. Um, that was something that I was blessed with the opportunity to experience in my own trauma recovery journey. I got to have some EMDR sessions with my trauma therapist, gosh, 2013, 2014, 2015, you know, it was just, That's been a while. That's yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I got to do that then. And so it was really interesting how it came full circle and it's something that we incorporate in our program our influential leadership because uh -huh. every every single one of my clients being able to step into the being the leader you're called to be requires deeper inner work and for so many of us high performers what it is is we are just really high functioning you know you brought that up because that's it's, you know, we're super high functioning and all of that unhealthy coping can still create a really, really big, powerful ROI, but obviously it's still the limiting factor stopping us from getting to the next level. So incorporating things like EMDR, um, trauma and, and tension release technique, where you're releasing stored trauma from the body, doing the EMDR and reprogramming and reprocessing the subconscious while adding in these emotional mastery and self-management and self-leadership techniques means that everybody's really integrating all of themselves and aligning their full power and potential into their passion and purpose. And that's what help, helps them hit that exponential growth curve, that effortless success because yeah. it's the right effort rather than constantly being in this trigger and reaction cycle that keeps us stuck and feeling like shit. 
<laughs> right? Like, you know, and that's why I'm like, I specialize in mindfuckery because, or I should probably say unfuckery is, is really right. what I should right. say. <laughs> but like, it's that high performance stuff. Cause there you go. Right. You said like six sessions, like, bam, all good. And obviously it's yeah. not alleviating the fact that we still need to do more work. However, it breaks the cycle of being trapped in the prison. It yeah. unlocks the door That's and exactly. allows us to be in charge. Well, I think, I think when you're, you know, and it, and it manifests in a lot of ways, but for me, I think I was blind even to my own self-reflection. I think I'm, I'm very aware now of personal awareness and emotional intelligence and all these things. And I'm always wanting to get better for the sake of just getting better as a human. But for a long time, I think I couldn't have hard conversations with myself mm -hmm. and trauma therapy allowed me to look at other people for what they were, not what I wanted them to be. But it also allowed me to look at myself for who I truly was in the moment, not who I was telling myself that I was. And, you know, I love David Goggins and I love his book, Don't Hurt Me. And in that book, he talks about the accountability mirror and being able to look in the mirror and say, hey, you're fat. You need to figure this shit out. You're broke. You need to like, you need, you know, and not that you carry that every single day, that mindset, because I think there's this group of people that are like, oh, you've got to be kind to yourself. And you do. But at the same time, you know, and I recommend everybody read the book because he does a much better job of explaining this, but it allowed me to look in the mirror and say, this needs to be addressed like right away. Like you need to get on top of this. You need to get on top of this. And you need to get on top of this. And you need to have a really harsh like, not like, Hey man, you put on a couple pounds or, you know, your, your financial situation isn't what it should be. Or, you know, are you showing up for your kids? Like you should, it's like, Hey, you're a fat ass. And you need to figure this out. You're, you're going to die. You're going to put yourself in the grave early. You're not going to be able to hang out with your grandkids down the road. And to be honest, you know, now eating well and physical fitness is a really big, um, part of my life and my journey and it's important to me for a lot of reasons but I wasn't always that way I was super soft I didn't care about what I ate I never mm -hmm. slept I lived on energy drinks um I put nothing nutritional inside my body for a long time and I and I told myself hey I'm going to build businesses I'm going to sit at this desk and I'm going to go meet people at their desk and that's how I'm going to contribute to my family and to my community but I was killing myself without killing myself I was eating my, I was eating my emotions. I was drinking, you know, re, li, literally living on Red Bull and sugar and the ability to have those hard conversations, you know, um, gave me my life back. And now I can, now I can show up for myself and for others in a way that I never have. And I'm not getting, you know, stepped on as a doormat along the way. And so the trauma therapy does eliminate that stuff for you, but it gives you so much back once you get, you know, you basically get your emotional, like, the self-awareness back because you're not always triggered and always protecting yourself. It's really, really transformative. And in so many ways that I never imagined it working for me. I just didn't want to be miserable anymore. I'm like, they're right? like over it. Way, but her name is Carrie. I'm like, Carrie, I just can't, like, I literally can't breathe. Can't breathe. Emotionally, I am destroyed and I need to take my kids to basketball practice and this place is their, their practice facility. And every time I drive past this place, it messes me up. And I just didn't want that. And now, you know, fast forward 18 months and my life is completely unrecognizable. Mm -hmm. It is truly amazing what happens when we're willing to step into that place of truly looking in the mirror 
for the purpose of radical honesty, accountability, and ownership. And it's really being willing because I mean, I, 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 the biggest mask we wear is the one with ourselves. You know, we lie to ourselves so good, (laughs) right? And when we take that mask off and actually get radically honest and being in a place of ownership as opposed to destruction, right? We can be in, I can be in ownership when I'm not living up to the standards I've set for myself or not living up to the things that I know support my vision, my goals, my passion, my purpose, right? I can be in a place of radical honesty and ownership of it because it's a place of learning and growth as opposed to the self-destructive cycles that I was the same way. It was like, just eat and drink my emotions, whatever. But that could be a whole nother episode, but thank you so much for sharing your genius today. This was an absolutely amazing conversation. I am certain people are going to want to know where they can find you online. So where could they find you if they want to learn more about you or love hard? Um, so you can go to let's love You can also find us on Instagram at love.hard143. And my handle right now is Sean.Vera Mental Health TV. It's really long right now because we are pushing obviously the show out, but um, Sean.Vera, Sean.Vera Mental Health TV. Um, yeah, and DM me, you know, if, if you ever, I'm on the phone all the time helping people out. Um, so anybody out there who's listening has questions about EMDR resources. There's a lot more than just EMDR out there, as you mentioned. There's, there's just a lot of techniques for trauma and we're for all of those. Um, being mentally healthy and happy, I think is the key to solving pretty much all the other problems we're dealing with on the planet right now. So Stacey, you're amazing. I'm so glad we, we connected. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. So thanks for having me. I hope we get to do it again soon. You are so welcome. Thank you for joining. And I am certain we will. And for those of you listening, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review if you enjoyed our conversation today. And of course, remember, as always, You are enough, and I will see you in the next episode.